1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Today's episode is sponsored by Organifi. If you're into high-performance superfood powder blends to boost your smoothies, then you simply can't go past Organifi. Organifi uses the highest quality plant-based ingredients for optimal health with organic ingredients and less than three grams of sugar per serving. Not only that, but their products are also very delicious. Visit Organifi.com forward slash boost. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash boost for 20% off all products. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash boost. What's up, fam? Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm pumped because I have a much-anticipated special guest. She is an expert in the areas of stealth infections, environmental toxicity, regenerative medicine, ozone therapy, and cannabis research. Her passion lies in uncovering the mystery behind the chronic illness narrative, whether that be stealth infections, heavy metals, stress or trauma, and other environmental toxicities. So Dr. Jessica Petros, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so very much. I'm really honored to be here.
2: Awesome. So maybe Jess, do you want to let my audience know a little bit about you and um, I guess your journey, how you got so fascinated into like uh, regenerative medicine?
1: Yeah. So me, I'm a Western trained medical doctor actually, and I don't really subscribe to that system anymore. And the way that came about was I was a board certified internal medicine physician. I worked as a hospitalist, which is a doc that admits basically anything from the emergency department. Um, I had to even admit, orthopedic patients, So I had to know something about everything it felt like. Um, And I really did that for almost seven years of my life that I could never get back. And uh, then I started to see cracks in the system. Um, I started to see how they were feeding oil and sugar to cancer patients. And You know, Patients were being discharged on, sometimes I would do med reconciliations for 50 different medications on discharge. I mean, it was nothing close to what we we would consider health if we sat down and thought about it. And so when I questioned things, rather than be tolerant of dissent, they really, um, the biggest red flag was that they were intolerant completely of it. And they said, you're becoming a disruptive physician. If you continue to do that, you can't work for us. And Mm -hmm. so I quit. And then I went and got trained in all these other alternative modalities we're talking about now. Institute of Functional Medicine, Ozone. Um, I wrote cannabis cards for patients and when I saw how well that helped them, um, I went and got trained in that. And finally, um really got down to self-infections because I feel like that's a root cause of disease.
2: Mm, yeah, I'd love to I'd love to get stuck into that because I feel like um yeah, many stealth infections can mimic the effects of so many different diseases that disease states. So maybe do you want to dive into maybe like the the leading stealth infection? Let's say Lyme disease.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, Lyme disease is a is a funny one, and despite the fact that the CDC has just said there's going to be three hundred to four hundred thousand new cases this year, and it's, it's increasing in number. They say because of climate change, for whatever reason, ticks brought, territory has broadened. And so despite that fact with the CDC, you still have these doctors who don't believe in chronic Lyme disease. And this is the great imitator. I mean, it can really go underground in people. Some some people, if they're lucky, they'll have a bullseye rash, which is the heralding marker for acute Lyme when you get the initial infection. And then they may feel a little flu-like, but that's really it. Some Mm. of them don't even ever get the rash. And so it's kind of like having the flu or a cold. You don't think anything of that. And then later it comes out in things maybe like joint pains, chronic migraines, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, all these like labels we give people for these random constellation of symptoms that we don't know where they came from. And there really is an answer.
2: Mm. So let's, um, I guess with Lyme disease, um, what is the Western medicals opinion on, um, like treatment for Lyme disease?
1: Great question. So, (laughs) Because they really don't believe in chronic Lyme, they really don't have answers. They don't have good answers. They have answers for acute Lyme disease. And they, if you catch it, where they get you know a positive Western blot or Elisa test, they'll say, okay, here's doxycycline, which is a pretty famous first-line antibiotic treatment for Lyme disease. Um, And, you know, I'll talk to patients and they'll say, you know, they found a tick on me when I was little, I had symptoms, I had a rash, and they gave me two weeks of doxycycline. And that is just not sufficient for people um, at all. And they're just following guidelines.
2: Mm, So I guess, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Um, They're very reductionist in their approach to treating it. So obviously your Your stance on you know addressing Lyme disease is more of a holistic approach, right?
1: yeah, that's a great way to say it actually because I truly believe um, I am not going to give this like magic bullet pill to fix someone's body. It's like magic. It puts everything back in order. So your whole body runs in this beautiful orchestra there, that pill, I wish it existed. It does not. The only way to really heal someone is to make their body see the problem that they missed. And then the body itself has to do the work to recover it. No magic bullet or easy way out here. And so oftentimes that means, we have to make sure you're sleeping okay, you have good energy, you're eating the right foods, um, you're going to the bathroom enough or not too much. There's all these things that you have to evaluate that equal a healthy body and lifestyle, mm. right? And I like to work with that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So considering that Lyme disease is like a, is a stealth infection, does it make it very difficult to um, see or is it apparent on someone's blood test or is it difficult to, to see that?
1: I love your questions. Yes. So, um, this is a great one. it's because a lot of doctors don't know the answer to this one. Um, they, we think if you have an infection, it's in your circulatory system, right? And not all the time guys, you know, when you draw the blood, the, The pathogen isn't always there. And Lyme is a great example of this. And what I say about the bacteria Borrelia that causes Lyme is form follows function. So this is a bacteria that when it gets inside our body, if it hid out in the bloodstream, our body would pick it up and destroy it. So it's a corkscrew shaped bacteria because its form follows its function, which is burrowing into tissues. Mm. So it goes underground into mucous membranes, into connective tissue, into synovial joint fluid, because it can burrow with that corkscrew shape. And that's the perfect way for it to hide from a lot of our immune cells. So no, very rarely, unless you run it out with like maybe a sauna the night before, very rarely will you find it in the blood.
2: Mm, that's really fascinating because um yeah, one of my... One of my real close friends has Lyme disease and um, he mentioned like the fact that there's certain things that can, you know, re-trigger the virus or like uh, re- re-trigger the actual infection itself. Um, so what are some things that can actually re-trigger it and like um, wake, it up, wake it up in a sense?
1: Absolutely. So, so Lyme disease really needs some sort of, and mold too, actually, both of these under the heading of biotoxin illness need a priming event, I call it. So sometimes that's like something stressful in someone's life. Sometimes that's someone dying, a close loved one, a job change. It can be as simple as that. Um, other times it's a little more complex. Sometimes people will get an overlying infection, something like COVID, or something like Epstein-Barr virus. Mm. Um, they'll move into a moldy home. That's often the igniter of things like this. So mm. I am I'm a firm believer, Lucas, that you know all of us are exposed to spirochetes and the bacteria, but why it affects other people and sometimes people don't have any problems is their haplotype in their genes as well as their other exposures um, and if they've had priming events.
0: Mm,
2: interesting. Okay. So... Um I like how you sort of mentioned yeah mold because I think we can start to see that how that sort of fits into the big picture as well. Um, so let's sort of let's sort of touch on mold toxicity because. Yeah, again, like many people aren't aware that they're affected by mold. So yeah, let's, let's discuss that.
1: Everyone. Everyone. You're right. Um, and it's it's kind of the trendy thing to talk about right now because it's on everyone's radar. And I think this science is finally starting to come out. Finally, but you know, Lucas, it's like seventeen year gap from when it's published to when it's put into practice. So we've still got a while to educate people. So mold is um it's one of these unique toxins that um It's very common. And, you know, obviously mold exists out in the environment. People are like, how do we stay away from mold? Um, Airflow in nature prevents rampant mold growth. And it's our home, uh, the way we've built energy efficient homes that have promoted the growth of mold, as well as our little volatile organic chemical hot box of soup that we make houses with right mm. so that so that's really what causes mold so you can imagine most people have those the houses built all the same way so we're all at risk if there's some sort of leak in our home um, and if there's water damage um, on top of no airflow that equals pretty rapid mold growth mm. and you know unfortunately mold is one of these toxins that can get, breathed into our cranial cavity where it gets access to the brain and it can spin our, our neuropeptides and our hormones way out of balance. And when that happens, it's like, air traffic control that controls all the organs from the brain down. So then everything gets screwed up in the body and people have huge problems with endorphin production and pain and problems with sleep and difficulty holding their urine and weight gain and all this stuff that um, there's not a really good answer for in conventional medicine.
2: Mm. Yeah. Um, Funnily enough, it's, uh, I've heard people say that like with um, mold toxicity, Some people get like weird neurological symptoms. Like, have you seen that at all?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Like, um, really, you you. When I said you breathe the mold spores and the hyphae, the little thread-like structures, into your cranial cavity, they can stick and they can colonize people's cranial cavity um, and nasal cavity and cause an immune system malfunction in a normal human from that. So yeah, um, 100% when you breathe them in and they're stuck, they have access to your brain, you guys. There's a paper written in 2016 that connected type three inhalational Alzheimer's to mold toxicity, actually. So, and we have seen case studies done by Dr. Shaw at Great Plains Lab of reversing autism in a child who lived in a moldy home.
2: hmm mm. Yeah, so it seems like obviously mold can be very stubborn in a sense. So it's like very difficult to um, eradicate from the body. So like, where does somebody? Where where should somebody start?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. It's it's overwhelming for people. So this is the saddest part of my job: is telling people that their house might have mold. Mm. Um, No one wants to hear that, and if your house does have water damage, it doesn't mean you don't have good hygiene or you don't clean well. It doesn't mean that you guys, it doesn't even mean that it's old, nothing like that. Mold can grow in the newest of homes. And so really the first rule of environmental medicine is avoidance of the toxin or the chemical irritant. And so if you do have mold in your house, you really, um, the hardest part for me to, easy for me to say, you want to either really quickly remediate properly or move out of the home um, so your body can recover. That's first and foremost and the hardest part. Secondly, um, really most of the time, mold starts to block out your amunctory pathways or your drainage pathways. Um, that's how it gets on top of our body and our immune system. And so I teach people how to scream themselves. You know, can you sweat properly? Sweating out mold is a huge, huge, huge deal. Um, mm. You know, can you poop? Do you have good energy? If not, we need to tend to all these things like your mitochondria and your bowels and your liver because mold will start to ruin each of those organs on its own. So how do we pull things like mold spores out of the body when when they're not supposed to be there? Binders. So Mm. toxin binders are sticky enough to pull, molecularly sticky enough to pull out things like heavy metals or mold spores, for example.
2: Mm, Amazing. Yeah, so... I could see a sort of a a powerful therapy. There would be like a combination of, you know, like sauna therapy combined with like let's say zeolite and some other um, detox agents.
1: Exactly, nail on the head. You know, this was why Kilvine Sweat was so popular. um, Which I never thought that trademark protocol would be so popular, but it was because really just getting people to take an herbal, um, you know, antibiotic or an antimicrobial herbal antimicrobial take a binder and then get in a sauna or work out or move your body, that alone is enough to help so many people.
2: Mm, yeah. I think a lot of people sort of neglect um, the importance of the, the lymphatic system. Like t- how can somebody yeah like nourish and nurture that lymphatic system?
1: It's such a good question. It's it's so true. I feel, feel like people forget about the lymphatic system. It's really the forgotten system. And it's unfortunate because I call it the sewer system of the body. Because um, it really, it, it really the stuff in your lymphatic system, guys, you would not want to know. Not only of the stealth pathogens that hide there, but a lot of persistent organic pollutants mm-hmm. um, that hide in the fascia and the connective tissue and places like that. Um, and so if you deal with a lot of like cellulite, lumps and bumps, pain in the connective, tissue. You want to look towards the fascia and the lymphatic system. Um, and so the lymphatic system really helps to drain our body um, mm. and gets dumped back into the bowels. But if your liver is stuck or stagnant or you're not pooping properly every day, I almost guarantee that your lymphatic system is stagnant too. Mm. And remember guys, stagnation breeds disease.
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well said. I think um, people they definitely neglect the fact that the body needs to be constantly excreting and eliminating toxins, and giving the chance, giving the body a chance to, like, you know, go through periods of um, fasting and purging to a sense. Because, yeah, I mean, there's 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 millions of people who wake up every day who may skip the bathroom, not not need to go take a you know a poop, like. <laughs>
1: And then they think it's normal. They think that like, it's great when they can't sweat, they don't stink or, you know, they don't have to go to the bathroom and they just say, you know, my whole family did that. It must be normal. But you guys, common isn't normal. And really like, what's the purpose of pooping? It's to get rid of toxins that you're exposed to or that you put in your body.
2: Yeah, I think that gives us a good uh, opportunity to transition over into like, Um, Looking into gut health, because obviously every practitioner talks about gut health and the microbiome, like, but I'd love to hear, like, what's your stance on like the microbiome and like, how does it fit into like the whole wellness picture?
1: Yeah. So I'm sure most people who are listening have heard have how the microbiome is called or our gut is called the second brain. Um, and really, I actually think it's the, our first brain. It sends more signals to our brain up here than our brain up here sends to it. Mm. And we have now found that you can control certain neurotransmitters in the brain by regulating the gut function. Actually, it's miraculous. And Mm. if you guys don't know traumatic brain injuries, concussions, football players get them in different contact sports. Those people often have disrupted gut function because the brain is connected to the gut. So super, super important. And now we know the science is coming out. That's just so fascinating. We have a human microbiome and a human virome. So we have billions of bacteria that make up our gut more so than cells and trillions of viruses that make up our gut and actually helped us evolve our genome and our genes change over time. So all these things like kills 99% of germs and all that stuff, that's really for me, a war on humanity because we can't single out germs and pathogens we are one walking germ (laughs) and that's what the microbiome is it's wonderful it's connected to all autoimmunity um, and and really connected to how well how healthy and how long you're gonna live is how well your gut functions
2: Mm, definitely yeah i think um yeah obviously like outside outside the scope of uh, a poor diet let my listeners know like what are some other factors that can hinder the microbiome
1: yeah, so honestly, stress, you guys, is huge. Um, and, you know, in our countries, Lucas, and in, in Australia, United States, we really downplay how awful stress is on everyone. Um, and that's something to not be taken lightly. You can get leaky gut just from having chronic stress, you guys. Um, alcohol is another thing um, that, that really uh, shows very little benefit to any sort of gut health at all. Um, we used to think that one drink a day was healthy. It, now studies are showing that's not true. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, antibiotics are terrible for the gut. Um, and the misuse and overuse of them is a rampant problem today. And it's I describe it as like napalming the Amazon. You really sometimes can't get that diversity back, even in your lifetime. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really important that people know this. Um, some other things, you said besides food?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so besides food, um, gosh, stress, antibiotics, uh, alcohol, goodness. Any sort of surgeries really too can form scar tissue for people. I mean, obviously, if you have to have emergent surgery, it's okay, but try to every last-ditch effort before you have to go there if you can because that can form <sighs> scar tissue in the gut, actually.
2: Yeah. So. <laughs> um, that's all right. Um, so with... Um, Obviously, like with the microbiome, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, um, like your stance on like probiotics. Yes. So probiotics are...
1: Obviously, if you guys hear, it's opposite of antibiotics. If you if you um, can hear the difference there, and so probiotics, I I love them. I think they're wonderful. I take them. I help them with my patients who've gone through a bunch of killing phase to get rid of stealth pathogens. It's really nice to try and attempt to re inoculate the gut. But what we're showing is they really don't have that much of difference um, for a lot of people, like sticking power for people. They can help with acute problems. Um, they can help with um, you know we have certain probiotics for vaginal health. We have certain probiotics that that go with certain bacteria or certain viruses. And in acute acute instances, those can be really helpful. Um, Mm. But they're not going to put our gut back to where we were before we had those rounds of antibiotics probably.
0: Mm,
2: Yeah, I guess um, looking at the the 80-20 rule, like probiotics are going to, they may help transiently. Like if somebody's going through like diarrhea, like Saccharomyces boulardii is awesome for that. Um, Yeah. Things like that. But I I think um, some people, I guess, would probably forget that though some of those bacteria, the probiotics can, um, even though they are transient, they can still exert changes to the like genetic constitution of someone, like have epigenetic effects as well, right?
1: That's correct. Absolutely. Because we know now, the science has showed us that bacteria are actually what activate genes and they they do have epigenetic change. They are what epigenetically change our genes. So pathogens can change them for good or bad, you guys, is what that tells us. And probiotics are what are they, right? They're bacteria. So obviously they have, can exert certain effects on our genome, for sure. Thank you for bringing that up.
2: Mm. You know, it's funny is um, like, well, back when I was, you know, when I was trained as a naturopath, like we discussed the importance of fiber, you know, feeding the the, the, the gut microbiome. And now we've got this carnivore diet that's just trending at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to, I'd love to hear your stance there, Jess.
1: You know, I, I am really big on not denying people their experience. So, you know, I think what's happening is we're just see- seeing people really reacting to Um, herbicides, pesticides, and processed foods and the way that humans are uh, adulterating or bastardizing the food chain, right? Mm. Um, And so there are certain people, for example, who can't eat nightshades. There's nothing wrong with tomatoes and onions. There's something wrong with going on with their gut in their body, right? And the same thing um, with people who can't tolerate (laughs) greens or vegetables, in my opinion, or lectins, for example, right? Um, and then you talk to other people, like they can't tolerate meat. Like there's people who have had Lyme and they have something called alpha-gal syndrome, where they have anaphylactic IgE reaction to any sort of meat product. Wow. So does that mean all meat is bad for everyone? No, mm-hmm. everyone is very bioindividual and different. And so although I think everyone should eat fruits and vegetables, I have heard, I don't know about you, I've heard like, amazing miracle stories from certain people who did well on the carnivore diet
2: yeah absolutely I mean I, I've heard some amazing um, transformation stories and <clears throat> people completely eliminating their autoimmune disease and um, yeah because I mean like like you said basically just eliminating those food groups and like you like you mentioned with nightshades like how's somebody ever gonna figure that out like how are they ever gonna know <laughs>
1: I know. I that's the thing. It's they're really reacting to the just food that has been processed and and grown and and around the wrong man-made chemicals. In my opinion, mm. I don't know how you feel about it. And every person, because of our genetic predispositions and just our, our sensitivities in general, each person is going to show that toxicity in their body a little bit differently, and therefore have a little bit different recipe than their neighbor, perhaps.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, something that's difficult, I guess, for people is um, sometimes like the very delayed effect that they get from that food. It's like they'll eat a certain food, let's say spinach or whatever, and they're fine that night, but then 24 hours later, they get all these weird oxalate symptoms, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and you're like, well, uh, that's me. I don't do a lot of food sensitivity testing. I don't.
2: You just so. go by you just go by like patient symptoms, sort of thing, or.
1: Yeah. You know, I really tell people to eliminate what we consider like, you know, if you were going to do an elimination diet with someone, I do that with just about all my chronically ill patients. I remove any sort of like processed man-made food, nothing their ancestors would recognize. And then, you know, everything's wild caught, grass fed, organic, as much as they can afford. Um... And then, you know, I don't do a lot of restrictive diets. I don't do like a candida diet or a mold oxalate-free diet. Um, If people are reacting to healthy foods, it's a problem with something in their body that doesn't belong there, that's confusing their body. So we can band-aid things, but ultimately I'm going to go for the root cause, which Mm. was why can you not eat something that's good for you?
2: Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think um, a lot of those food sensitivities come back to like just compromised intestinal tight junction, you know, production, things like that, and compromised microbiome. So yeah, I think um, like the whole leaky gut story just seems to transpose across so many diseases, right?
1: Mm -hmm. It seems to be connected to everything. I mean, yeah, first, second brain, whatever you want to call this, right?
2: Yeah. So let's sort of look at like, I'd love to hear your experience, like working with patients and sometimes like with that healing narrative, like some let's let's look at let's look at a particular example or a scenario where somebody feels like they can't heal, like they're, But they're, it's their mindset that's holding them back. Like, where, how do you address that?
1: Oh, that's so hard. Honestly, I mean, think about how hard it is to change yourself. And then, th- and then that's it's doubly hard to change someone else, right? So mindset is the hardest thing for me. Um, and if you guys, like, you know, you're a practitioner, Lucas, you know, a lot of times you're a psychologist as well as a friend, a therapist and a doctor all in one. And um, with, with chronically ill patients, sometimes that's what's needed because people honestly will have their own boot on their own face. Sometimes they'll be under their own worst enemy with their mindset. And so a lot of times it's childhood trauma. It's, it's the way they were raised. It's, it's the what they were shown. And they may hate it, but people go back to what's familiar a lot of times. And so, um, yeah. And so what you have to do is really get down to the nitty gritty and the details of what people do in their nine to five Mm. You know, what does your daily activities of living look like? What do your thoughts look like? What are your belief systems around your daily activities of living? Um, Because really people, um, a lot of times they snowball into chronic preventable illness because of the nitty gritty in their daily life. It's not being addressed. Mm. Um, And so sometimes if they're open to childhood trauma work, I'll suggest shadow work like cellular release therapy, EMDR, um, I really love um, kind of the the therapy that gets you out of your intellectual thinking mind, which is what a lot of people need to be pulled out of sympathetic overdrive into parasympathetic drive where they can make better decisions for themselves. And a lot of times it's just getting them to take that pause and they go, oh, wait, I see the error in my ways.
2: Mm, Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, like one of the the early skills that I learned like as part of the naturopathic training was... um, my favorite subject—it ended up being counseling. Like I never huh. thought. I'm always someone who's so fascinated with mechanism of action and like herbal actions and like
0: <laughs> all the stuff. I love it.
2: But I was fascinated with like counseling because I was like, oh, you can heal someone just by holding space.
0: What?
2: <laughs> yeah, like it's like you
0: don't, do, you
2: don't have to say anything. Sometimes you just have to be there and listen to them. And because I like,
1: love that.
2: Yeah, like. They, some people crave that, don't they?
1: You know, they don't get it. Think about it. Um, I can tell you when I was a hospitalist, like I had 50 patients a day to see. You know, I couldn't spend, I wanted to talk to patients sometimes. It was not like Grey's Anatomy. You do not have time to sit around and talk to patients. And so, you know, and most doctors in an outpatient setting or MDs anyway, will spend, you know, six to 10 minutes per patient. How is a patient supposed to tell you anything about their health in that time? So- yeah. By the time they come to me, or probably you, um, they sit down and you start listening and holding space and they start crying for like sometimes the whole hour because they've wanted this their whole life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That actually happened um, recently to me, like um, with a client that I was seeing, um, or, or, and he said that he's never, and you've probably heard this yourself, like they say stuff to you that they've never said to anyone because yeah. you're that person. Um it's hard as a practitioner as well though because like we want to be empathetic but at the same time not take it on like I'm sure you've this happened to you <laughs>
1: Yes, it's so hard, you guys. I mean, especially if you're an empathetic person, if you're not aware of your energetic boundaries, which we're not taught this. Like I am just now learning this as an adult. I mean, recently, and even in the last few years, as you know, as an outpatient now, acting more as a naturopathic doctor than anything else, really. Even though I'm an MD, I would be able to work only you know two or three day full eight hour days with people, an hour at a time, because I would not know how to shield myself properly. And I'll tell you how you know, guys, if someone tells you a really sad story and it hits you right here and you tear up, it's you've let it in too far. Um, mm. And that was my whole day, every day, it was me just tearing up with patience and then leaving and wondering why I was exhausted.
2: <laughs> and that's the other thing, practitioner burnout, right? Like, oh, it's hard, <laughs> hard.
1: It is. And I'll tell you guys, this may take the personal sting out of it for some patients. Doctors are so overworked and I am guilty of this. I'm sad to admit it. When you're so burnt out, you start to see, have less empathy for people and start to see them as more inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. Like you're just a number move out of my way because you're so stressed out, right? And that's what you're seeing with a lot of the doctors right now. And they don't mean to treat you guys horribly, but they're... Miserable themselves.
2: Mm, yeah, definitely. Like um, a good analogy, there would also be like, how full's your cup? Like, can you actually take on board some? Should you be seeing a, a client or a, or a patient if your cup is overflowing? <laughs>
1: No. And it's, that's a great perspective. I mean, it sounds so logical to hear when you say it like that on here. But when I was in school, um, you know, a few years back, it was like a fraternity, like a hazing, like old boys club. But we went through this, therefore you, we work 30 hour shifts, therefore you have to do it. You know, that was more the perspective. I wish it was like you said.
2: Yeah. It can be challenging. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, but definitely that, that subject, um, counseling, like, Some of the skills and things that I learned not only were applicable to being a a practitioner and building that therapeutic relationship, but just generally just being a better human in society, like actually paying attention to, oh, am I just talking about myself the whole time or like am I actually? Right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
1: you learn your patients actually teach you so much. And if you'll just sit and listen to people, like you said, and hold space, I learn so much from people that come to see me like Mm. so much.
2: Mm. There was one, um, there was one cool saying. It was like, uh, listen to what you cannot hear in Mm. the client. So like try and listen to what they, because there's a lot of stuff that they often like hide as well. There's things in the background that you sort of have to get to, but you don't want to be like too intrusive there.
1: Yeah. It's a it's an art. It is. And medicine is absolutely in the best of light and art as well.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. So what about, let's sort of um, segue into like, um, generally like chronic fatigue syndrome, because I'm sure you've seen tons of patients in the past, just complaining of chronic fatigue. Like where can someone start if they're just suffering, if they've been told or even though it's not considered a diagnosis, by you know, Have you seen that stuff? It's like there's uh, adrenal fatigue uh, is not a...
1: Oh, yeah. They don't consider that an actual legitimate thing or diagnosis. Yeah. But they'll say adrenal insufficiency or Addison's. They'll believe that. And then they'll say chronic fatigue syndrome, but they don't believe that the adrenal glands burn out. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's it's bizarre. I've heard Dr. Kerry Jones talk about it endlessly. Um, But with, with chronic fatigue syndrome, like, uh, like where would you start? Where would you start there?
1: So chronic fatigue, um, you know, I tell people all the time, your body is not made to be tired. You're tired. There is a, I promise there is a root cause. It's just not who you are. Even if you were, since you can remember, it's really doesn't have to be that way. So chronic fatigue is really just a constellation of symptoms, a criteria, if you will, that you have to meet. And then they say, okay, okay, checkbox. We can give you this drug because you've been diagnosed with this disorder and this ICD-10 code. So first of all, know that guys. So the symptoms really, you're so exhausted. You probably can get out, hardly get out of bed. You are heavy, weak. Um, You may have some aches and pains here and there as well. And you may have trouble with circadian rhythm and light sensitivity. Um, and so if you guys haven't had some sort of stressful life event that, w- that was prolonged um, or you're not, you don't feel like you're in sympathetic overdrive all the time, sometimes people can really burn out because of self-pathogens or toxicities that their body can't get rid of. So they're constantly in this fight mode. Um, trying to beat something, but their body is having trouble. Um, The biggest one that comes to my mind every time someone says this to me is mold. Um, And that's my famous thing. I always say mold ruins mitochondria, but it does. That's the first place it goes. And if you guys remember mitochondria from biology 101, those are the little powerhouses of the cell that crank out ATP and cellular energy. They're in every single cell, but red blood cells. That's how important they are. And when they can't go through the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain, you guys are stuck with just a couple ATPs instead of 32. And then you can't power certain reactions in the body. So when you think about organs that have the most mitochondria, like the brain and the sex organs and the liver, you can't, you start to get really a lot of brain fog. You start to, maybe your liver doesn't work right. You start to have mood swings, right? Or headaches. Um, You start to have gain weight because your energy reserve is gone. And so there's, A number of things besides mold can do it, Lyme can do it, uh, reactivated Epstein-Barr, including some parasites can do it. Um, Even some toxin exposure alone is enough for sensitive people.
2: Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you made that link there because a lot of my listeners will be into like performance and sports performance and energy and training. So like Mm. just understanding the fact that mold in and of itself can be a stressor to our mitochondria amongst Heavy metals and um, nutrient deficiencies as well, which is which is yep. key. Um, but with with the mold directly affecting the mitochondria, is there a certain like? Would it be easy to research that? Like, is there a particular mm-hmm. type of mold that is targeting that, or?
1: Yes. So, if you were to type in, let's say, mycotoxins, which is a certain toxin that mold makes that's a volatile organic compound, and it's pretty serious for humans. So, if you type in mycotoxins and mitochondria in CBI, there'll be a plethora of articles that come up. Mostly, it's black mold, toxic black mold that's doing this. Something like Aspergillus, for example, or Stachybotrys. Um, these are two of the biggest uh, types of mold species that um, will. will be suspect for this, I would say.
2: Mm. Yeah, just, just quickly for my listeners, Jess, do you have any um, useful resources where they can learn more about this mold toxicity you're, ta- you're discussing?
1: Yeah, you know, if they wanted to, yeah, I do have. So it depends. We have a hierarchy of levels to this, so it depends on if you guys want free info or more vetted um, niche info mm. that you would subscribe to. So. Um, you know, I published tons of free articles on drjessmd.com and I'm really active. We both are on Instagram. We try and put out tons of free information, um, for people who need help. Um, and then if you think you like what I see see with me, um, I have actually a wellness subscription app on my website and, um, app.drjessmd.com. Um, I have total, like, PDF, root cause PDFs and protocols there, like re- root cause reasons and solutions. I do a two-hour webinar every two weeks. I have professionally filmed education courses where mm-hmm. I teach people how to read lab work or a vaccine empowerment course. And then I have tons of controversial blogs and articles that you couldn't publish on social media. Um and you know, guys, if you just go to drjustind.com, I have an entire FAQ section. I had my Instagram audience submit questions that I answered from my website. I also have a complete how to do killbine Sweat, which is my treatment for mold on there. So you guys can go on there and that's totally free for you.
2: Mm. Uh, we'll definitely make sure to link those because um, yeah, a lot of my audience and even myself, yeah, will be interested in expanding my knowledge in this area because yeah. yet again, I mean, like it's definitely a neglected area. Um, of achieving, you know, ultimate health. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's really useful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let mm. me know. I'm happy to help. So
2: mm. okay. So obviously we've we've discussed, you know, Lyme disease, chronic fatigue, um, heavy metal toxicity. We've we've had a look at the healthcare system, um, <laughs> mitochondrial health. Um, what about like um like vitamin like high dose vitamin therapy or nutrient therapy?
1: Yeah, I love that, actually. I often will pair something like a Myers cocktail or high dose vitamin C with ozone, actually. Mm. Um, And that's a really great protocol for people. Um, Just don't do them on the same day. Obviously, one's a pro-oxidant, one's an antioxidant. Um, But I love that. I love high dose um, vitamin therapy. I mean... I've seen people come in and get a you know, a methylated B vitamin shot and feel like they're gonna fly home because they needed it so bad. So just, you know, nutrient deficiencies, you guys, they can cause a lot of brain fog, a lot of fatigue, a lot of being less than your optimal self if yeah. you don't have those proper levels and our soil is stripped. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to think about things like that, especially, Lucas, like if someone has, can't absorb properly or has leaky gut or something like that, then nutri, IV nutrition is a really great, great way to make sure you're getting what you need.
2: Yeah. It makes me wonder whether um, mold toxicity or mold exposure can deplete nutrients. Is it possible mm-hmm. or...
1: One hundred percent. Yeah. And it does it through inflammation in the body. People, I've seen people like eat like a champ. Like they, we, you would be so proud of their diets and they have, they're still like their nutrient depleted or they don't, they have vitamin D's in the toilet. And it's because they're high inflammation. Um, they're not able to properly absorb anything they're eating. You know, a lot of times these people's bile are stuck. They can't emulsify their food to absorb it. It's crazy.
2: That's a whole other area as well, like the whole bile, um, like sludgy bile or um, just compromised gallbladder function. I know like I got really fascinated into um, like the TCM approach on like, have, have you heard some of the language that they use, like in, improving spleen chi deficiency or spleen, uh, spleen function, things mm-hmm. like that?
1: I need that. That's like <laughs> self-love and like worry and all. That's me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm fascinated by TCM, actually. I want to always know more.
2: Yeah. I've um like after after school, I used to go to this place called China Books and I used to just read. I love to see how they view the body compared to how we view the body. And then also, you know, my dad's a pharmacist as well. So I'm seeing it through like three different lenses. Yeah.
1: That is really cool. I and mean, then Ayurveda is another one that's, that, that's similar yet. It's own system too. That's pretty cool. Mm. Um, but what I was going to tell you about bile, it's a big one for, for mold because mold is so lipophilic. So it's going to hide out in fat tissue. So bile is fat soluble. It's alkaline. Mold really hides out and stagnates the bile. It hides out in the fat tissue. It causes a lot of cellulite and weight gain. And then it hides out in the brain because the brain is 70% fat so you're going to see issues with mold in all those places
2: yeah from a bile perspective i want to like offer my audience uh, some little tips right now like let's let's discuss some strategies to improve bile function and bile you know output
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if any of your listeners have ever been to Europe or somewhere, or, you know, I don't know, they may do this in Australia. They give bitter salads before meals a lot of times, arugula or something like that. That's a bitter herb. um, And that really helps to stimulate the uh, digestive enzyme function and bile function. If you guys um, think about bitters before meals, that's what purpose they serve is to get your bile going so you can make proper, um, it even helps with betaine HCL production. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and bile salts and bile acids are really important. Things like, I really love urosodiacolic acid is really important. Oh, it's so good. Even Western medicine will use it.
2: Are talking (laughs) about um, Utka or Tutka?
1: Yes. Toro Urosodiacolic acid. That one's wonderful. And you can high dose that for people. And it really helps people who've had gallbladder problems or even had their gallbladder out in the past. Mm. Um, you know, it can, it can replace ox bile for a lot of people. Um, and then digestive enzymes are really important. Although I do prefer bitters. I'd like to see if they can make their own enzymes. Um, yeah, betaine HCL super important. You have to have a, a di- digestive fire mm. to cleave your enzymes, right? To make your bile move. All that's really important. And the bile pathway you guys is stimulated by any sort of bitter herb. Mm. So when you taste that bitter pathway in your mouth waters, that's in preparation for digestion. So your body's mm. getting ready, right? It's preparing to move the bile and get ready to move um, your nutrient nutrition to assimilate things.
2: Absolutely, my um. My go-to bitters are I use um, artichoke extracts. I also use tutka. I take I took tutka this morning 500 milligrams. Um,
1: nice. Yeah,
2: that that um, I've seen I've seen it improve my liver markers like dramatically like AST ALT like just brings them yeah. down so quickly which is amazing
1: my dad on his last labs had high eosinophils cuz he was in the middle of a parasite cleanse so those are part of your white blood cells that get elevated when there's allergens or you know parasites for everyone listening and then he had elevated liver enzymes AST and ALT so his body was literally showing me you have parasites in your liver and you're not done with your cleanse yet but Tudka it did it got it n- normalized his liver enzymes too
2: it's amazing yeah <laughs> I-, I love tudka um, and even, yeah. and even taurine as well. I'm a huge fan of taurine as well. To
1: all those, methionine, taurine, cysteine, all those are so important for phase two liver detox.
2: Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, some of the research coming out with some of the bile acids, just having such there's this receptors all over the, like there's weird receptors everywhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the body's amazing. You're right. <laughs> yeah,
2: there's like bitter receptors everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Bitter, bitter receptors, like um, not only in the gut, but like even weird organs, like other weirds, like kidneys and stuff.
1: You're like, why are they there? Yeah. yeah. I don't know.
2: From a, uh, from a traditional Chinese TCM approach, um, a couple of really powerful digestive stimulating herbs, I don't know if you've heard of or, or, or use um, a Codenopsis. It's like poor man's ginseng or dang shen.
1: Oh, no, I don't. I don't know a lot about Chinese herbs. Like you could probably totally school me and teach oh, me some things here and there.
2: Oh, <laughs> um, like when I was trying to like optimize my own digestive function, like I use a really small amount of, it's called poor man's ginseng because it's not as powerful as ginseng, but it was like codonopsis and like that was like gentian. Have you had gentian?
1: Oh, gentian's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Like
2: it just gets the digestive fire going so well.
0: Um, yeah.
1: I I love that stuff. Yeah. is awesome. Okay. So similar to that, it's I like it then probably. Um, another one I forgot is yarrow. Yarrow oh, yeah. is really good too for the bile.
2: Yeah, can you you can have that in tea form, right? Like just yarrow
1: uh, tea. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yep. I actually use it, I'll have yeah. people drink yarrow tea or ginger tea before they take an Epsom salt bath so they'll sweat. Oh, okay. <laughs> yarrow helps like ginger does with that.
2: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I think I recall <clears throat> we learned about something called um, yep tea, yeah. yarrow, elderflower, and PPP. I can't remember what the P stands for.
1: <laughs> huh. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Huh.
2: And yeah, it's something there. But yeah, there's so many cool, like, again, like, it's good that hopefully audience you know, understands like so many intertwined systems, the organ systems that they're instead of taking that reductionist approach, like with just, you know, sort of like that Western medicine approach, it, we really need to address it from like that holistic route.
1: I completely agree. Um, you hit the nail on the head with that one. Biggest thing.
2: Mm. So is there anything else just like you wanted to like explore any other like areas of research that you're like really passionate about?
1: <clears throat> no. I just want to leave everyone with the fact that if, um, start start with, I can't beat the, the dead horse enough. Start with the mitochondria. You can't really expect your organs to function properly if the cells that make them up aren't running in peak performance. Um, mm-hmm. And the studies are just now coming out, you guys. They're showing environmental toxins, damaged mitochondria, and mitochondria are like bacteria. They have their own set of DNA, but they don't have the same DNA repair mechanisms as mm-hmm. our regular DNA helix. And so once they're damaged, they take a bigger hit. So take care of your guys' mitochondria. That means getting out in the sunlight early in the morning before the UV rays come out really bright. That means movement. That means sometimes ketosis and intermittent fasting. Um, And it really means returning to nature. You can take all the supplements in the world, but if your (coughs) day-to-day life isn't healthy, it won't matter. Mm,
2: Yeah, well said. I think um, if this podcast will get released on a Friday, so... We should come up with like a saying: "Mitochondrial, Mondays."
0: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I'll do it.
2: <laughs> yeah. All right, Jess. Well, um, yeah, definitely some really valuable information today. Um, remind my audience again where they can find you and your resources.
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So, if you guys like Instagram, you can check me out over there, Doctor or Dr. Period Jess Period MD. Um, my website is drjessmd.com. That's where all the FAQs and Kill, Bind, Sweat information is. And then if you would like a, you know, to get personalized information from me on the forum or through emails and on webinars, then the app is for you. And that's app.drjessmd.com.
2: Amazing. All right. Well, um, yeah, I'll be sure to leave them in the show notes. So, um, yeah, Jess, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, it was great. You were an awesome interviewer. So thank you so much.
2: Thanks. Yeah. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology.
1: This has been a No Filter Media production.
0: Say what you want.